Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Markets and Morality, an IA show where we explore contradicting opinions within the classical liberal free market tent. I will be your host, Adam Bartha, Head of International Outreach here at the IA. Today's episode will have a slightly unusual setup. Uh, rather than two guests completely disagreeing with one another and calling for different policy proposals, we will have two experts who are rather in alignment today, but they wouldn't have been five years ago. Who changed their mind and why? Well, you will see shortly. Today's discussion will revolve around a rather new scientific field called behavior economics. And if the expression doesn't tell you much, you're in good hands because one of our speakers wrote a whole book about it. It's my pleasure to introduce the author of Escaping Paternalism, Glenn Whitman, who is a professor of economics at California State University. His research interests include microeconomics, applied game theory, and economic methodology. But we invited him for the show because of his current policy interests, which include paternalism and healthcare legislation. I'm also very happy to welcome our own paternalism expert here at the IA, Chris Snowden, who is the head of lifestyle economics unit at our institute. He's also the author of numerous books that focus on pleasure, prohibition, and dodgy statistics. Chris also added the European Nanny State Index, which measures lifestyle freedoms across the club, across the whole of Europe. Gentlemen, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Chris, nudge theory is very much a key component of behavior economics. Could you outline for us what nudge theory actually means and why it could be perceived as a practice that's in line with classical liberal principles? Yes, I mean, the, the basics of it are that people are not as rational as economists assume and that they're irrational in quite predictable ways. And they have certain biases that are very common that you can prove that they have these biases and irrational beliefs or thoughts or actions through psychological behavioral experiments, that this irrationality leads to bad decision-making and that even the individual who's making the bad decision would agree that it's bad decision-making because they're not pursuing the objectives that they want. And finally, that having learned all this, there are some quite simple and generally liberty-preserving ways of adjusting society in some subtle manner or other, changing the choice architecture around people in order to just gently nudge them in the right direction. That's, that's the idea. And why do you think people on the classical liberal end of things have endorsed it in the past? How is that compatible with a kind of more freedom-minded mentality? We, we, it's supposed to be libertarian paternalism. And so a lot of the things that are uh, put forward as nudge-based proposals don't seem particularly illiberal. They range from things like painting a fly on a urinal so that people point in the right direction to putting the fruit at the start of the canteen rather than the French fries um, to having automatic enrollment for pensions 
and indeed for uh, organ donation cards. So a lot of this stuff, it's not exactly you know heavy-handed authoritarianism. And in many cases, you could say, well, we're just changing the default. You know, we're changing the default from not being automatically enrolled into this saving scheme to being automatically enrolled. And there has to be a default. This is what Thaler and Sunstein say in the book. Say, so look, that there always is a default. Somebody has to design that default. We just think it would be better if the default works in favour of the latent desires of the vast majority of the population. Glenn, that doesn't sound too bad, but you wrote a whole book criticizing it. What's your main critique and why do you think that it goes against the principles of a free society to nudge people towards better outcomes? You know, it's a hard thing to answer that question because in the book, which by the way, I wrote with Mario Rizzo, my longtime uh, co-author, and so I feel I have to mention him. And it, the book goes through a, a litany or a kind of a gauntlet of concerns, starting off from the very philosophical and conceptual all the way to the very practical and applied and policy oriented. And so it's difficult to say, here is the one criticism. But to focus specifically on the question of why uh, libertarians or classical liberals should not necessarily jump on this boat, the main thing to realize is that a lot of this literature kind of elides the distinction between public and private and between coercive and non-coercive. And so, for instance, when we're talking about something like whether to have automatic defaulting of people into uh, savings plans, there's often not an explicit discussion of, well, is this something that is being done by employers voluntarily and other employers could choose to do differently and people could choose different employers, possibly at least in part influenced by that? Or is it instead required by the government of all employers, which does in fact involve some infringement on people's ability to choose different kinds of arrangements for their lives? Uh, to take another example, uh, take the uh, cal cafeteria placement of foods example. Well, nobody has ever denied that a restaurant has the ability to place things in the order that they want. Uh, in fact, it would be fully libertarian and classical liberal for a uh, restaurant to ban desserts entirely and to offer only what they regard as healthy food or to be a vegan restaurant. Uh, none of that implicates questions of liberty. The question is whether we're going to have that take place in a more competitive environment, meaning we don't have a single set of defaults that has to be imposed on everybody from on high, but instead we can have a kind of ecology of different firms, different individuals, different households adopting their own different methods of trying to shape their behavior and the behavior of other people who choose to associate them with them. Does it actually matter how easy it is to switch from the default? So your argument and your critique seems to be against kind of governments forcing private corporations and individuals to set the default. But if the default is incredibly easy to change, is the argument as strong as compared to a scenario when the argument is that, okay, you have to make a serious effort to go out of your way and buy certain foods in a cafeteria or opt out from a private pension system? It seems to me that the behavioral paternalists are kind of trying to have it both ways here. On the one hand, they're saying that these interventions are going to make a big difference, that they are going to shift people's behavior in important ways. And on the other hand, they're saying, oh, it's so easy 
to opt out. It is just extremely low cost, really no cost at all. And I think those two things are in tension with each other. It might be a lot more difficult for people to uh, muster the self-control or muster the effort or the time that it takes to be able to make those, uh, those shifts. So again, we don't necessarily want a single decision that's imposed on everybody in that kind of circumstances, we, or that kind of circumstance, uh, we want a more competitive environment where it's possible for things to, to change. Glad if I can uh, chip in. Um, I don't think having read your book, which is excellent, by the way, absolutely fantastic book. Um, having read the book, I know that you don't deny that people have biases and people are irrational and people are ignorant and all this kind of thing. And um, to give a couple of examples that are in your book, but are also in most of the, the behavioral economics books, um, you have the, the ultimatum games and things like this, where people have a very straightforward kind of exchange to make. They have to negotiate. And sometimes if, if people feel they're not being offered enough of a split, for example, in, in $100, then they will turn it down and neither of them gets any money at all, which is irrational from a standard economics point of view, because you would take any amount of money rather than take nothing. Similarly, it's well known that people join gyms, uh, pay the full year up front. They join in January when they're trying to get healthy and they never use it anywhere near enough to justify the amount of money they've, um, they've spent there. Um, I mean, how, I know you introduced a concept of inclusive rationality, which I'd like to hear more about. But I mean, how would you explain those, just those two examples? So this goes to the question of rationality that is being used by uh, the analyst in question. So there's a definition of rationality that came from neoclassical economics uh, in the early 20th century. And it was driven primarily by the demands of mathematical modeling just the desire to be able to make a certain set of axiomatic assumptions about people's preferences and beliefs and so on that would allow them to construct uh, utility functions and other mathematical objects that would allow them to uh, model economic behavior more easily. Uh, but then those axioms of rationality, which largely required consistency, the idea of consistency uh, across all of one's choices and preferences, uh, they became kind of reified and they took on a normative dimension as well. So the idea was not that just this might be a reasonable way of modeling how people do behave, but in fact, it's how they should behave. Now, interestingly enough, the behavioral economists, while challenging the validity for predictive or descriptive purposes of that particular model of rationality, kind of swallowed whole that model of rationality for how people should behave. And so we're dealing with a normative model of behavior that I would argue is not persuasive and not correct. Now, I wanna address specifically this question of how people behave in the ultimatum game, because that goes to a different assumption that is often associated with rational choice, but is a distinct thing, which is the assumption of self-interest. The assumption that people's preferences are exclusively oriented towards their own well-being. And now nothing about even the standard economic definition of rationality requires that. It's just that they happen to be paired together a lot when building economic models. It's a nice, simple assumption to assume that people are only acting in their own best interest and nobody else's. But it turns out 
that people have preferences about all kinds of things, including the behavior of other people, their feelings about other people, and so on. And they have preferences about fairness. And that's almost certainly what is going on in the case of the ultimatum game. If somebody offers somebody a, a certain split, so they're given $100, and the first person in the ultimatum game gets to choose a split, and they could do 50-50, or they could do 90-10, if they, and then the second person, as you say, they only have the option of either accepting or rejecting. Well, if they get offered a pittance, if they offered get, get offered only $10 out of the hundred, and there doesn't seem to be any good justification for that, they merit very well may decide that according to their preferences, they're willing to sacrifice that $10 for the value of sending that other person a message, for the value of upholding some idea of fairness that they have. There is absolutely nothing irrational about doing that. It just means that the old assumption that people are strictly self-interested is wrong. Uh, there's, there's no reason to believe that that justifies a conclusion that people are making mistakes and that they need to be corrected. Now, the second example that you bring up is more interesting and more challenging uh, from the perspective of whether it might justify some form of paternalism. And that's the case of gym memberships. So people join gyms and they get a membership that's automatically going to deduct a certain amount of money uh, every month from their account, or maybe they pay a large amount up front. And they don't use that membership often enough to end up justifying that amount of money. They would have paid less money if they had just paid on a per trip basis. And they also take quite a long time, sometimes a month or two after their last visit to finally cancel the thing. And so this might seem straight up irrational behavior. But again, this is an example of a cramped and narrow definition of rationality that makes it impossible for us to understand normal human behavior. A couple of things could easily be going on there. The first thing to realize is that people try to constrain and affect their own behavior to, to control what they themselves identify as certain kinds of bias that they might have. And so for instance, somebody who wants to start exercising and they believe that they need to start exercising more, they might realize that having to pay every single time that they go to the gym and having to go through the, pro not just give the money for that, but also go through the process of, uh, of doing that each time, that that creates a certain cost to them and that that might deter their future self from going to the gym. And so people will make commitments like this as a way of trying to shape their own behavior. Interestingly enough, it is the behavioral economists themselves who have said, well, okay, people might be present biased in some way, and require some correction. Well, this is people perceiving their own present bias and then coming up with a device in order to control their own, own behavior and to restrict the effect of the bias. All right, so that's the first thing that's going on is that people are deliberately choosing and maybe paying for a type of gym membership deliberately for the purpose of manipulating their own behavior. The second thing to realize is that people don't, automatically know everything about the world and they don't automatically know everything about themselves. People are engaged in an ongoing process of learning, including learning about their own foibles, learning about their own preferences, learning about their own strengths and weaknesses. And so 
people will experiment with different things, different models of how to shape their own behavior to see what happens. And so when somebody joins a gym for the first time, they might be thinking, let's try this out. Let's see what's going to happen. Let's see if doing it this way is going to shape my behavior in a particular way, in a way that I hope. And maybe what they find later is that it doesn't. And eventually, once that sinks in, once they realize, okay, that's the kind of person I am, and maybe this commitment is not going to change my behavior as much as I hoped, then at that point, they finally drop out of the program. So to me, this doesn't strike me as irrational behavior. It strikes me as individuals at least possibly engaging in a process of experimentation and learning about the self over the time. Good answer, indeed. Can I ask you about uh, uh, some specific, um, I don't know if you call them nudges, because some of them are a bit more coercive than that, but just this week in the UK, the government has introduced mandatory calorie labeling in large restaurants. They exempted the small ones because they realized it was going to be too expensive for people to comply with it. Um, I know it's something you mentioned in the book. What's your what's your problem with that kind of legislation? Well, it's I just giving people information, saying, right? Yeah. So I should start by saying that I'm not adamantly opposed to calorie labels. Uh, I've used them myself and I've appreciated them. But my main question here is, is this really a nudge? Are we really using behavioral economics here at all? Because mainstream neoclassical economics told us that people can make better decisions when they have better information. So this is no surprise at all. And we're, we haven't learned anything new from behavioral economics on this front, that better information can change people's decisions. So then the question to me is, what is the purpose in presenting it as such? Why do paternalists like Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler constantly give this incredibly innocuous example as their first case? I think there are a couple of things going on. Uh, one of the things going on is it's a rhetorical strategy. It's kind of a debate strategy because the idea is to characterize something that most of us don't think of as paternalism. They think of it as just being helpful, having some good information characterizing that as paternalism so that then they will have established that thin end of the wedge to be able to say, well, you accepted this, how about a little bit more? Here are some more things that you might be willing to accept under this umbrella of paternalism. Uh, the second part of what's going on is I think they're coming from a different set of underlying assumptions. Uh, I think one way to put it is to say that behavioral paternalism has a complicated relationship with the truth. If you were coming at it from purely a perspective of providing people information, then it would just be a matter of giving them the information and that's it. And it wouldn't matter the type of information that they were getting. Uh, but if you're coming from a behavioral paternalist perspective, the assumption is that people are not processing the information correctly. And if you're coming from that perspective, then what you want to do is provide information if and only if you believe that it will push people in the right direction, not if that true information will push them in the wrong direction. And so this is where we see a variety of related proposals, some of which you've mentioned earlier, which are cases where you could provide information or you could provide more accurate information, but instead they choose to bypass information. So for instance, automatically defaulting people into a savings program instead of providing them with better financial information and advice. Or for instance, having graphic images, scary images on packs of cigarettes 
instead of simply providing people with information about the health consequences. A, a policy like that is justified not by the idea that people don't have the information. By now, people do have a pretty good understanding of the negative consequences of smoking. It's the belief that, well, they're not using that information the way that they should. It's not affecting them enough. So what we're going or to it's do not is amplify. Enough. Yeah. So we're going to amplify that information. We're going to try to increase its salience uh, to make sure that they are taking adequate account of the risk, not just knowing the risk, but taking adequate account of the risks. And it also plays out in policies such as not giving people truthful information about the potential benefits of harmful products. For instance, uh, snus makers, snus is a kind of inhalable tobacco. They are not allowed to give the truthful health information that snus, while potentially damaging, right? It's not great for your health, but it is better for your health than other kinds of tobacco, but they are not allowed to provide that information. Again, they're coming from a perspective of people not being able to process the information correctly, and they're going to try to push them in that way. Uh, so this is these are my main concerns with uh, the calorie counting. But let me go one more step with this, with the calorie posting, that is. Let me go one more step with this. And that's that you have to ask, is this policy actually going to be effective? And it really turns on this question of what you mean by effective. It turns out out of something like 16 different studies that have been done on this topic, only three of those have actually found that it had a statistically significant effect on how many calories people were consuming. Now, uh, it turns out that some people see the calorie counts and actually end up consuming more. Other people see the calorie counts and consume less. Other people are not affected. The aggregate effect seems to be pretty much nil. And that should be the end of the story if you were really coming from a perspective of respecting people's subjective preferences, which the behavioral paternalists claim to be doing. If they just respect people's preferences, then if the result of posting the calories is that some people actually consume more and other people are not affected or consume less, that that should be okay. We just leave it there. But odds are they're not going to leave it there because of the fact that they expected this was going to have an impact, that it was actually going to move the needle on what they observed as an external or objective indicator, which is things like obesity rates and consumption of calories. And so this is where you start to see the, that slippery slope potential. It's not that it comes from the policy itself. What it, it comes from is the set of arguments and ideas that surround the pushing of that policy in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I drew that conclusion myself at the end of a, a book I wrote called Killjoys years ago, which is, you know, the, the nudge people, they're all basically you know, think like an economist type people. So, well, educate them about economics, right? I mean, <laughs> presumably these people don't need these nudges because they kind of they think in a logical economist way. Why not just teach a bit more economics? You're also right, of course, the, the, the calorie count thing is, is basically, it's just information whether it works or not. And I agree, it, it, the evidence suggests it doesn't really work. It's just information. It's not really a nudge. And in fact, nor are some of the other most famous so-called nudges. The, the fly on the urinal I mentioned, that's not a nudge. I mean, sorry, it is a nudge, but it's not a paternalistic nudge. Unless you're actually cleaning the toilets, there's nothing paternalistic about it. And the organ donation thing, well, you're going to be dead by the time that kicks in. So there's nothing at all <laughs> paternalistic um, about it. So most of this stuff is either... Um, not um, not libertarian, not paternalistic, or or not a nudge. 
Can right. I ask you about the paternalists themselves, though? And I don't necessarily mean Thaler and Sunstein, who you know who write lots of books and and um, do very well for themselves, but the paternalists who dedicate their lives, in some instances, sacrificing income to do it to stop people gambling or to stop people smoking or to try to stop people losing weight. As I say, I'm leaving aside the professional zealots of whom there are, there are many, but mm-hmm. how does kind of basic, even inclusive rationality account for people being obsessed really with, with the lives of others and wanting to change other people's lives? Is this just yes, another utility function? Yeah. I mean, I suppose that's the simple answer is it's just utility function, but I'll try to do better than that. Uh, I mean, this really goes to the question of not just, you know, modern new behavioral paternalism, but old style paternalism as well, which of course has been around for millennia. My best guess on this, and this is stepping outside my area of expertise, but I tend to have a, an explanation from evolutionary psychology, which is to say, People, you know, evolved in these contexts where they were in a family or clan or tribe kind of setting. And in that kind of setting, uh, your survival very much depends on the behavior of the other members of the group. Uh, So if another member of the group is not taking care of themselves, making uh, unhealthy choices or what have you, uh, that person might be making it so that this group is less likely to be able to provide for itself in the future. And so I think that built in a natural psychological tendency to constantly be in each other's business, uh, to constantly be worrying about what those around us are doing. And then when you take people evolved in that context and you put them in modern civilization, it's easier for, easier for that to become kind of overextended. So it ends up being not just being in the business of my close family and my neighbors, but also being in the business of everybody over the entire polity. So I think that's part of the story. I would also yeah. add that, go ahead. Uh, so you, do you think the answer is more anthropo- anthropological than uh, based on economics as such? I think that's true. I mean, I think there's another piece to it, which, well, there are a couple of other pieces to it. So uh, one other piece to it, I think, is, look, most people are are not intellectuals, nor do they need to be. They just need to run their own lives, right? But, uh, you know, in a modern democracy, we are constantly asking them to have opinions about things that are, you know, much bigger than them. And I don't, I'm not here to criticize democracy, but this is one of the difficult things that a democracy has to deal with is that you have lots of uh, ignorant and uneducated people, at least ignorant and uneducated about a lot of the things that they're expected to have opinions on. And one of the things they're expected to have opinions on is things like this. And fundamentally, where I come from, and I, I think most of the economics profession, indeed, at least nominally, the behavioral economist is from a perspective of subjectivity. Subjectivity means your preferences, your preferences, they don't have to be the same as anybody else's preferences. Ultimately, the standard of goodness is how well you're achieving your own values, whatever they might happen to be, provided that you're not damaging other people around you, right? Uh, But subjectivity is just that idea that you have these idiosyncratic preferences, and that's the real standard of value. But I don't think that's a typical way of thinking for most average people just going about their lives. I think a kind of more natural way for a lot of people to land is on an idea of an objective idea of good and bad and right and wrong. 
Uh, and again, that may come from evolutionary psychology. And so, and so that's just an easier place for them to land. And then I think that those kind of uh, policy preferences get enacted. Uh, it, I, there's a really important observation made by uh, economist Brian Kaplan. He calls it rational irrationality, which is the idea that people may have ideas that aren't rational by some standard, uh, not necessarily an inclusive standard, but not rational by some standard uh, or not well-educated or not well-thought-through, but that whether they correct those wrong beliefs or um, insufficiently justified beliefs uh, is a function of the cost that they bear. And so if it's about their personal lives, if they have a wrong belief about a family member or their job or what have you, that's going to have consequences for them. They have a strong incentive to fix it. But if they have a, an unjustified belief about politics, that's something where the marginal impact of their making an effort to get better educated is not going to have any impact anyway. And so for that reason, people can hold uh, wrong or unjustified beliefs for a much longer time. Glenn, so I think that's another part of the story. Yeah, sure. And, and you have criticized um, behavior economics and kind of the, some of the nudging policies because they don't lead to the desired outcomes, at least by those who have designed them. If they would do so, so if, for example, um, menus with calorie counts would actually reduce obesity rates, would the argument change then? And same question to Chris. Some, for some reason, a couple of years ago, you were a lot more encouraging and positive towards um, nudging. And what changed your mind? Was it just seeing the results that they don't seem to work or is something else at play? I think to answer that question, I need to go back to this issue of, of subjectivity, right? If you really believe in the subjectivity of values, then obesity or not exercising enough, these are not objectively wrong things. Uh, they involve trade-offs. And so as an individual, I have to decide how much uh, momentary or present pleasure I need in order to justify uh, what losses I might experience in the future and how I make that trade-off is fundamentally subjective. Mm -hmm. What that means is that in judging the efficacy of one of these policies, to observe that it does or doesn't actually move the needle on how much people eat and how many people are obese uh, is really irrelevant to the, the original goal because maybe it moves people, maybe it doesn't, but it might be that if it does move people, it's moving them farther away from their subjective preferences. And so for that reason, it, it, for me, it, it really should not turn on the efficacy. Now, if that changes their argument, right, then I think we've caught them kind of shifting to a, a new idea because the whole justification, the whole concept of libertarian paternalism from the beginning um, was this idea that you would help people advance their own subjective preferences by their own lights is the phrase that Thaler and Sunstein use quite often. But if you then move away from that and say, well, instead, we're going to be looking at objective measures. We're just going to be saying, look, obesity is bad. And if we move the needle on obesity, then the policy has been effective. Then I think they've lost what's distinctive about their proposal because now they're no longer talking about new paternalism. That's old paternalism. That's the kind of paternalism that we had centuries ago where we just judge people based on some external set of values that they might not 
excuse me, some external set of values that they might not share. Chris, do you actually agree? Is there an external set of values that we can judge people's opinions by? Or should we be completely subjective and, you know, leave it up to the individuals and not encourage them through kind of some of the nudging policies to change their behavior? If they decide to be obese, they should be obese and let them be. Yeah, well, it's not that they decide to be obese, it's that they decide to do things that have the consequence of making them obese. Um, I mean, to answer your, your first question, I was never that great a fan of the nudge thing at all. My, my position used to just be that it's not important and we should pretty much ignore it because there's so few. If you actually stick to the rules in the original book, Nudge, then there are so few actual policies. Even in the book, they only suggest like three or four policies. And as I say, not all of them are even paternalistic. Um, there's, there's not much. In fact, the, theoretically, the government should repeal thousands of laws if it, if it went through all the legislation. When does this fit the, you know, the rules of, of nudge? So my argument was always that it was basically benign but quite trivial and not really worth people getting worried about. It was at a time when there was a lot, quite a lot of libertarians going, "This is really sinister. It's about manipulating people." And most of them I found had never even read any of these books and hadn't read nudge. And I was just saying, look, this is not a big deal. Uh, reading this book, <laughs> in Glennon uh, Murray's book, has uh, it's helped me formulate in my mind some of the reservations I already had about it. But it's already it's also um, made me more suspicious of it, more wary of it. And I always knew that it could easily be a force for bad because I saw people uh, on the hardcore public health paternalism side starting to talk about nudging quite inappropriately but they would use the word nudge mm -hmm. to talk about things that clearly were just coercive you know banning packs of 10 cigarettes or um graphic warnings for tobacco minimum pricing and so on so there was always that danger it would be misused but what glenn and mario made me realize is that it's it's kind of it's bad from from day one and some of the stuff is still quite benign. I don't care that much whether people have auto-enrollment and pensions, for example, those kind of defaults. I don't really care if they put the, the bananas under a light in a restaurant. But um, a lot of the science behind it has fallen apart anyway um, due to the whole uh, crisis in psychology. Um, but, yeah, this book has really helped me kind of crystallize some of the issues with it and also and we won't get, haven't have time to get onto this today but also made me think much more about the slippery slope which i've always realized was a thing and i've seen it happen in the nanny state for the last 20 years but uh, in in this book and some of their other work on the slippery slope it's given me a much firmer kind of theoretical framework to think about it and to understand why it happens even though technically it's a fallacy well, Glenn, I'm glad to hear that you already changed the mind or partially shifted the way how Chris thought about these issues and thinks about these issues. I'm sure that you have done the same with the rest of our audience. So thanks a lot for the great discussion, both to you and Chris. And I'm sure a lot of people in our audience got a lot more interested in the topic. For them, I would really suggest to buy Glenn's book, Escaping Paternalism. Or if they are a bit more time constrained, then there is a good journal article by Nick Callan and the Review of Behavior Economics that outlines the main arguments of the book as well. And we will have both links um, below the description of the video. But for now, thank you so much for joining us today. We would be very curious to hear your thoughts um, in the comments below the video or on Twitter at ILondon. 
And also special thanks to our donors, without whom our work here at the I would not be possible. If you wish to become one of them, please do consider subscribing to our I Patreon account, where you can also receive some exclusive content and have a sneak peek into behind the scenes as well. But for now, thanks a lot for joining, and I hope to see you in two weeks' time again.